talk about what we're going to talk about this morning, and that is Luke chapter 8. As they're headed out there, there's something I want you to see from that video. It said, be transformed. I want you to think about the word transformed, and I want you to see the definition. What does it mean? It means to make a thorough or dramatic change in the form, appearance, or character of. And I want you to see that word change, because from the very beginning of Paragon Church, from day one, back in April of 2010, we had three statements that we've held on to, and that is, come as you are, be changed, and go change the world. Come as you are, be changed, go change the world. Like you saw here in this opening video, as it talked about being transformed, we know that our world right now is in a state of flux. It's all over the place. And as we look at that, we know that the things that are going on out there are affecting each and every one of us in here. And as it affects each and every one of us in here, it is shaping us. It is changing us. And some people, it is making them better. They're being transformed by Jesus. In others, it is making them bitter. They're being transformed by the world. There's an old saying that says, if it doesn't make you bitter, it'll make you better. Or you have to choose. Is it going to be bitter or is it going to be better? And I think some people have taken the getting better. They're growing closer to God in the middle of all of this. What a great thing that is. They're using this opportunity to show that transformational power of Jesus. They're using this as an opportunity to, to say, I have faith, I have confidence, I have assurance, I have hope, I have clarity in who Jesus is. I have the spirit which unites my life with others. I have that. But then, on the other side, like I said, you either get better or you get bitter. There are plenty of people over the last six months that have gotten bitter. There's a lot of bitterness out there. I was telling Christy as we were driving just the other day, it feels like everybody's taking that bitterness into their cars with them. People drive so much more angry, and we're talking about Albuquerque already, so so much more angry than they were. And it's like there's just bitterness that just flows through it. It's part of the reason actually why I've unplugged from social media for, from the month really of September. I started at the beginning and only a few little things have I done just for, for the church part of it all, but I've stayed off because there's so much bitterness just flowing through those social media platforms. So many things being said. So many people who claim Christ as their Savior and not acting like it online. And it was bothering me. It was bothering me quite a bit. Actually, it was making me angry. It was making me frustrated. And it was making me angry and frustrated at people that sat in here or sat online watching online. And as a pastor, you're not supposed to be angry and bitter and frustrated towards your own people. I mean, that is the reality even we talked about last week. We talked about that idea of shepherding God's flock. I can't be mad at the sheep that God has entrusted me to. And I said, I got to just step back. I got to step back from that. And, you know, the reality is that the people within the body of Christ are angry and frustrated with each other. They're, they're divided. Somebody jokingly told me this week or asked me this week and in the process of asking me, they said, do you think that masks are the new color of carpet division that the church is going to have? And I said, unfortunately, yes. 
And not just that, you add in politics, you add in social injustice, and you add in everything else that's going on inside of our own little worlds, and it causes this division. We have ourselves a mess in the church, and we definitely have ourselves a mess in this world. And I look at that, and I think, man, it's got to be something more. When I see what's going on, I truly believe there is something more than, than just COVID and politics and racism and all of those things. There's something more. Those are just surface issues. There's something deeper beyond this physical realm that is pushing these things, using these things as pawns to divide us. There are spiritual forces that are at work right now trying to divide God's work, trying to destroy God's work, and trying to destroy God's people. And unfortunately, they're being somewhat effective in the process. And as I begin to look at that, I, I see more clearly now than ever. I, I've even shared with some of you already this week that there's a, there's a battle that is going on. But that when I shared on Monday this week, or uh, what I shared with some people this week is on Monday, I had a chance to sit down and listen to some of my church leadership podcasts and read some of my church leadership blogs, and I just tend to go through that. But all of the ones that I watched, listened to, and read had the same theme this week. You know what it was? Pastor, don't quit. Pastor, don't quit. All of them revolved around that. Each of them says in some way, in some shape, that basically pastors, the shepherds of God's flock, are more discouraged now than they ever have been in the past. They're more discouraged about what the church looks like. They're unclear about the future of their church. They're uh, unclear about the future of the church. What is the church going to look like moving forward? What is the church going to look like post-COVID? Because it's not going back to what it was. So what's it look like and how do we handle that? And, and the, the biggest discouragement, I think, for pastors is pastors, unfortunately, churches, unfortunately, have a tendency to rely on what was happened already instead of what we're going to do. They, they kind of say, hey, this worked last year, so therefore we'll do it this year. And they say that every year, so it's always the same thing. Well, this year, everything got wiped out, so it's completely different. It caused this weird sense of frustration, anxiety, all of these things, discouragement that happened there. Uh, and, and pastors can't gauge what's going on. I mean, prior to COVID, I could gauge by what was going on by how many people were sitting in here. I could gauge by how many Bucks were in the bank. I could gauge by an event like our ladies' event that's going to happen, how many people came, how many people invited somebody, how many people got saved. I could gauge that. But right now, those gauges are all off. That, in a, any church, is going to cause some sort of level of discouragement for a lot of pastors. Here's the other thing. People are leaving churches right now for all sorts of reasons. And nobody even knows it because they just assume they're watching online. Or they just assume they're doing something else. And the worst part about it is, is not that nobody knows it, but nobody cares. And I know that sounds harsh to say it like that, but nobody cares because nobody's been connected for the last, what is it, 196 days since March 15th? When everything shut down and people went their own ways and reclused into their house and, and haven't talked to anybody and no connection, no follow-up, none of those things are taking place. So all of this is adding to a frustration for people, for the church, for the pastors. And here's something else to add. It takes 21 days to make a habit. At least that's what I've been told. 
if we've been doing this for 196 days, think about the habits that we formed. One of those habits is, I don't have to go to church. I don't have to be a part of a community. I don't have to do these things. So therefore, I'm just not going to. You said, well, we're watching online, right? Well, maybe. There's no actual way to get metrics of that either for a pastor. Because I can look and say, okay, well, YouTube has this many views, and Facebook has that many views, and you know, the, the website has this many, and some of the little things like that. But for the most part, a view is what? I mean, let's be honest. How many times have you come into church and you were completely and totally distracted and didn't hear anything about what was really going on? By the time you walked out, you're like, oh, I think that was good, and just walked away. Well, now if you're at home and you have your list of honeydews that is this long, and you're like, well, I could watch, or I could, not, you know, I'll put it off till later, or I'll watch, but I'm going to be thinking about all that. I mean, how many people sit and play on their phones in church? So what do you think is going to be the distraction when they're not in church? So I began to think about that, and I could see where this frustration comes in, and people are having this hard time with it all. And the reality is, all of it together, on top of what's going on on social media, when you watch the people in your congregation, the people that you've cared for, the people that you've invested in, the people that you've built up post dumb things that are ultimately divisive, that are tearing your congregation apart. And you say, you know what? I could do anything else. I could do anything else. I could go anywhere else. As a matter of fact, I'm not going to lie. There's been days that I have thought to myself, that my food truck idea of a sports-themed food truck that sold hot dogs and had all kinds of different things that kind of went with it. It's going to be called third base, the last place you stop on your way home. I've already thought through it all. I, I've got it planned, but COVID is not the time you start a restaurant, apparently. So I've jumped a plan B that I'm just going to go work for the Department of Transportation and sit in one of those tractors, those air conditioned that just cuts grass along the highway. Nobody's going to bother you. Nobody's going to call you. You put your earbuds in, you're done at five, you don't have to take your work home with you, you know, unless you find something on the side of the road that you want. But other than that, you know, that's kind of where so many people are at. And so I just give up. And it's a hard place for people to be. I've met so many people that have met, hit low points in their lives in the last six months. And I'm truly believing and telling you this now, it's not just a physical thing, it is a spiritual thing it is a spiritual attack so much so that the one stat that i haven't shared with you yet that, that just crushed me barna research group that does all the different church research and, and and christian research and feeling out the community says that by the end of 2020 one in every five churches will close its doors forever 20 percent of churches will close by the end of 2020 i thought to myself what is going on? What is happening? And see, last week, we, if you were here with us or if you watched online and were engaged, uh, you, you saw that we talked about the Good Shepherd. I'll be honest with you, it wasn't my favorite message that I've ever given. I, I didn't feel comfortable after leaving. I, I'm praying that God used it in a way to speak to you. It wasn't my favorite, but one thing that, that kept standing out to me was that idea of the hired hands that Jesus talks about, that, that when they are scared, they run away. And when they run away, something happens to the flock. And what happens to the flock is, is basically the sheep are snatched up by the wolves and, and scattered. And you see that. I started thinking, what if God's people are being snatched up by the wolves 
and scattered because of simple, divisive things that have pushed the under-shepherds away, the, the hired hands away, and left the sheep vulnerable? What if bitterness and dissension and politics and masks and social unrest and all the other things going on in the world are actually being used as tools to divide and scatter the flock? What if? What if that were the case? See, 1 Peter 5.8 gives me just a little bit of a glimpse of what that would look like if that's the case. This is what it says. Be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Well, who is he going to go after first? He's going to go after the one that is separated from the flock. The one that is, is, is not involved, not connected, not even knowing that, that, that being followed up with, that's the one he's going to go after. And the thing is, is he's the one that's also not under the protection and the provision of the shepherd. The whole idea is division. Divide us, then conquer us. Separate us and conquer us. See, Abraham Lincoln had a famous speech in which he said a house divided itself against itself. It cannot stand. A lot of people think that's a great speech. It is. The thing is, he actually took those words from Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus actually says, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. We are being divided. The enemy knows exactly what he is doing. He knows this passage. He knows the truth of it. So as we are being divided, it is knocking us down. And he's doing everything he can to make us bitter, not better. Everything he can. But here's my what if. My what if statement, going back to the video, what if we allowed Christ to transform our life through the middle of all this and make us better, not bitter, to be an example to the world that needs to see better and not bitter. What if Christ could do that? Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that Jesus Christ has the power to overcome the spiritual forces of this world? I sure hope so. I sure hope so. And the reason why I hope so is because there's two words, empty grave. I got another two words for you, okay? It's Gerasene demoniac. Not quite as popular as the first two words, but they're the two words we are going to talk about today. So if you have your Bibles with you, I would love for you to go to Luke chapter 8. And as you are in Luke chapter 8, we're going to be in verses 26 through 39 today. We're going to be in Luke 26, I'm oh, sorry, 8, 26 through 39. As you're flipping there or going there on your digital device, I want you to know that this is a pretty amazing story that you've probably heard lots and lots of times. But I'm hoping it gives you hope today in all the things that we are facing. See, for the last month, we've been looking at the teachings of Jesus. And those teachings have been pointed towards the disciple. We looked at the Sermon on the Mount. We looked at Luke 9, 23, where he says, if you want to be my disciple, this is what you have to do. But we, we looked at how to pray. We, we've looked at all of these different things. We looked at the Sermon on the Plain. And each one of those, it came down to a question that he asked both his disciples and us. And that is, do you trust him? Do you trust his teachings? Do you trust those to apply to your life that you are going to let God's kingdom come first and his will be done first and not your own? Is that where we live or do we want that flipped? Do you trust him? Do you believe he is who he says he is and that he's going to do what he says he's going to do? 
this amazing story we're going to look at today is in line with those teachings. It's in line with those teachings. See, sometimes Jesus taught with his mouth, and other times he taught with his actions. Today we're going to see it with his actions. As a matter of fact, as we look at Luke chapter 8, verse 26 today, if you go back up, you're going to see that he comes from teaching about the four soils and the seeds and planting the gospel in there. As a matter of fact, those will be on display in our story today. They'll be played out. But then it also goes from there that after the teaching, he gets into a boat. And he gets into the boat with the disciples. He says, hey, we're going to head across the lake. I've got another teaching thing I want to show you. And on the way, a giant storm rises up. You've probably heard this. Jesus is asleep on the boat. Disciples are all panicking. They wake him up. He stands up. He calms the storm. And they're like, whoa. That's a teaching moment. He has power over the wind and the waves. As a matter of fact, the last verse we'll look at before we jump to our passage today is actually in verse 25 in Luke chapter 8. It says, they were fearful and amazed, asking one another, who then is this? He commands even the winds and the waves, and they obey him. Who then is this? Mark that down. Mark that down, because what we're going to see next is something with Jesus' authority being witnessed firsthand. And as they do, they're saying, who is this? Can we trust him? Do we trust him in this? And think about these teachings because as they are moving forward, they're heading towards a final exam question. As a matter of fact, that final exam question is actually found in Math, or sorry, in Luke chapter 9, our next chapter, right before what we've already talked about when he said, if you want to be my disciples, you have to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. But if you look just a couple verses before that, Jesus has a final exam for us as well as for the disciples, the ones that these teachings are pointing towards. Here's what it says. I know I already told you we're going to be in Luke chapter 8, but jump over to Luke chapter 9, just real quick for me. Verse 18 says this. While he was praying in private, and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others, one of the ancient prophets has come back. But you, and here's the final exam question that we'll have as well. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah. See, in this, we see the Holy Spirit is opening Peter's eyes. From the teachings, both out of the mouth and the teachings by action, his trust is growing. And I believe that the opening of the eyes is going to even happen bigger in the text that we're looking at today. And I'm hoping that's helping us as well as we excuse me, as we continue to grow in Christ, as we continue to walk with him, as we continue to be his disciples, that we will trust him more and more, even in the midst of the storm and even in the midst of when things are happening and it just seems like we can't overcome. So let's pick up in Luke chapter 8. Jump back over to it in verse 26. It says these words, Then they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes. This was after that storm which is opposite Galilee. Now, depending upon the commentary you read, opposite of Galilee here either means it is on the other side of the lake or opposite because they're completely different spiritually than the Galileans. They're either non-practicing Jews, depending upon which commentary you looked at, or they are pagan Gentiles. One or the other, you also see there's a huge herd of pigs, which even if they're non-practicing Jews, they're really non-practicing Jews. So we're going to see that kind of play itself out says this in verse 27. When he got out on land, a demon-possessed man from the tomb met him for a long time. He had worn no clothes 
and did not stay in a house, but in the tombs. So everything about this man, he has been possessed by demons and he has been dehumanized by them. He's naked and he's living among tombs. Verse 28 says, when he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him and said in a loud voice, what do you have with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Remember what I asked you to underline in verse 25 or the highlight in verse 25? That the disciples who had heard all the teachings and all that said, who is this? He steps out on land and this demon or demons, as we will see, says, what do you have with me, most high son of God? He knew. The disciples who had been following still had questions. He knew. He says, I beg you, don't torment me. Verse 29, for he commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was guarded, bound by chains and shackles, he would snap the restraints and be driven by the demons into the deserted places. These demons are powerful. Look what they do to this man. Look what they do through this man. But they beg Jesus not to torment them. Why? Because they knew Jesus was all-powerful. They knew who Jesus was. They knew that even as a legion, as we're going to see, he was still more powerful. And we're going to talk more about that here in a second. But look what it says here. It says, what is your name, Jesus asked them. And this is a big question. See, we don't think much about it. For us, our name is just how we get called out in the crowd. But in these days, your name was wrapped up with your character. It was wrapped up with your identity. And so he says, what is your name? And he goes on from there. He says, legion. He said, because many demons had entered them. And he begged him not to banish them into the abyss. Now, we don't know how many demons were there. We know there's 2,000 pigs, according to the, the Gospel of Mark. But typically, a legion in the Roman military was 6,000 soldiers. So, oh, we know there's a lot. And it says from there in verse 32, a large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him to permit them to enter the pigs, and he gave them permission. The demons came out of the man, entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake, and they drowned. And I want to pause right here for just a second, because here's a hanging point for a lot of people on why they don't like Jesus, or why they aren't Christians. As a matter of fact, there's a guy by the name of Bertrand Russell. He was a famous skeptic British philosopher that said, he wrote a book that says, Why I'm Not a Christian. And he actually points to this story and says, How could a loving God destroy somebody's economic base just like that? No way would he do that, so I can't believe in him. The thing is, is that when we focus on the economics, I mean, obviously, if you're a pig farmer and you lose 2,000 of your pigs, that's going to be a pretty significant economic hit. But we miss, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as they record the story, do not miss it. We miss the transformation of this man from who he was with these demons inside to who God wanted him to be and was going to use him as. And that tends to happen to us sometimes, doesn't it? I pray that we don't get so lost in our COVID economics and all of the things political and all of that stuff that we miss the transformation that could happen as we see Jesus. Jump to verse 34. When the men who tended to those pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported it in the town and in the countryside. Then people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and they found the man the demons had departed from sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And look at these next four words. And they were afraid. Why? 
Why were they afraid? What was it to be afraid of? Why not rejoice in what God had done for this man who is now sitting at Jesus' feet in his right mind and fully clothed? See, the demons had stripped him and they had dehumanized him and they had ostracized him and they'd driven him into deserted places and Jesus clothes him. He, he brings him in and he makes him a disciple because that's where disciples sit is at the feet of the rabbi. So why were they afraid? Well, just some side thoughts that I had here. One is that the whole idea in their mind of that economy, that Jesus had drowned their pigs. They're thinking, that happened to my friend, the pig farmer. Could it happen to me? If Jesus comes into my life, could it change the way that I want life to be? Will it ruin me the way I was? A lot of people base that on the money they make or whatever it might be, and that seems to be the case here as well. Could the next bad thing happen to me? So therefore, they were afraid. The other thing I saw in verse 27, it said that this guy had been like this for a long time. A long time. And they had done everything they could. So they put guards and they put shackles on them and they did all that kind of stuff. And they didn't have the power. So when the demons wanted to snap the things, they did. But Jesus comes just like that. The man's healed. They recognized they had no control. And they recognized Jesus had all control. That scared them. Because sometimes we like to be in control and not listen to Jesus, right? Absolutely. Last thing, and this one kind of was a funny thought to me was, what are we going to do with this guy now? Now he's, now he's clean, and he's, he's sober, and he's normal. Do we just invite him back into the town? And if we do, do we let him hang out with us at parties? What if he goes crazy again? What if he has to date my daughter? You know, these are all things that, you, that, look who he used to be. You remember, that, that's kind of the thinking that we have sometimes, don't we? That that's who they used to be. What happens if they backslide, or whatever word we want to use there? And there, they were afraid. Verse 36, meanwhile, the eyewitnesses reported to them how the demon-possessed man was delivered, healed, whole again. Jesus had saved this man. Then all the people of the Gerasene region asked him to leave them because they were gripped by great fear. Again, that fear was still there. And that fear was dictating a decision. How often do we let our fears dictate our decisions and what we're going to do? This whole town could have celebrated that God was in their midst. And instead, they asked him to leave. They asked him to leave. They said, go away, because I am afraid. We are catering to our fears. So guess what happens? Jesus got in the boat, and he returned. Verse 38, the man from whom the demons had departed begged him earnestly to be with him. Remember what happened when Jesus first met him? What was he begging then? Don't torment me. Now he's saying, God, I just want to be with you. I want to be at your feet. I want to follow you. And he wants to go with him, but Jesus sent him away. I read some different commentaries, but this is the only time that Jesus didn't have somebody follow him that wanted to. He said, no, I want you to go. As a matter of fact, he says, I want you to go back to your home and tell all that God has done for you. See, this is our calling. Even if you don't know the gospel, if you don't know the Romans road, if you don't know exactly how to share your faith, the one thing you have is your testimony, who I once was, I met Jesus, now I can tell you who I am. Come as you are, I'm changed, now I'm going to go change the world. That is where we are in this. And he says, and he went off. He obeyed. 
He trusted Jesus and what Jesus said to do, and he went and did what Jesus told him to do, proclaiming throughout the town how much Jesus had done for him. You know what's really crazy? Just a little side note here. probably doesn't matter that much to you, but I thought it was pretty impressive that Jesus commissioned this man to go and share the gospel. He actually commissions this man, who's either a non-Jew or a backslidden Jew, to go and preach the gospel before he even tells the disciples to go and preach the gospel. Because we see him tell the disciples to preach the gospel in the first, chapter, or first verse of chapter 9. So he actually told this guy and commissioned him to do the work of the Lord before he ever even commissioned the disciples. How cool is that? So we walk through this passage, and there's so many different things to focus on. I mean, the first thing I see is the man. Second thing you see is the demons that are real, by the way. The pigs, the townspeople, all of this. But here's the thing. This passage is primarily and fundamentally about one man, Jesus. This is about Jesus. It's his person and his power that are grabbing our attention and pulling us closer to him. It's doing the same thing with the disciples. Remember, it's a teaching moment for them to see his power over spiritual forces. They already saw his power over the wind and the waves. They already heard his teaching, but now they're seeing something even bigger, that he has all authority in this. And there's a couple things I want you to see that as we begin to look at this display of power, to remember that Jesus does have the power over these spiritual forces even in our lives. So in this passage, there's four things I want you to see that point to that. The first thing I want you to see is this. A person captive to demons. A person captive to, be, to demons. It's a man who's in bondage. He's in bondage to these demons. And I, I want you to think about this. When Jesus asks him, what's your name? He doesn't know it. Because his demons had taken him over and that was now his identity. He didn't know his own name. As a matter of fact, we don't ever know his name, even when Jesus sends him out. He was a man that was possessed. That's it. And he was incapable of changing his circumstances. That's all he knew. He wasn't able to do it. He was totally dominated by these demonic forces. And while this is an extreme story, because I'm pretty sure that most of us haven't ever met somebody or ran into somebody on the street that had demons just living inside of them. Maybe you have. But... For the most part, we still can learn something from this. We still can learn something from this, and that is this, that while we might not be possessed by demons, we might be possessed by wants and desires that aren't God. We might be driven by things that aren't God. We want what we want, or we have what we want that aren't God, and we worship and we idolize those instead of the Son of God. I don't see us being any different than this man because we are possessed by something that is pulling us away from God. Something that he has the power over. We're still in the grip of sin. Whether it's a physical object or an addiction or whatever it might be, we're in that grip and it's pulling us away from God. So the question is, is what do you idolize? What is it that you want? What is it that you have that, that is becoming a God? We've said it before lots of times. A good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a God thing. If we take a good thing and make it a God thing, that's our issue. We run into to problems with that. What do we idolize? Like I said, this man's story is extraordinary. Not extraordinary, extraordinary. It's outside of the norm. It's outside of the norm. And it's not every day that we run into somebody who is inhabited, like I said, by demons. But every time you meet a Christless soul, every time you meet somebody who is not walking 
and following Jesus. They're like this man. They're dominated. They are identified by their sin or that thing that is keeping them from God. And they don't have any way of liberating themselves other than the power of Jesus, just like this man. So that's the first thing we see in the passage. The second thing we see is this, the power of the Lord Jesus Christ over Satan. It really is amazing. It really is amazing that Jesus comes to the shore and it's obvious that he has power over the demons because when they come, they're like, please, don't torment us. Son of the Most High God, we know who you are. We know your power. Please leave us alone. They actually beg not to be cast into the abyss. The demons who are in this man, who had terrified the countryside. I got to thinking about this. If this guy lived among the tombs, when it came time for you to do a funeral, were you afraid that some naked dude that could snap change was going to come running out of nowhere going, Aah! you know, I mean, you just don't even know what's going to happen. Imagine the fear of having to enter into this guy's area. And that fear is now in the demons instead of coming from the demons because they've met Jesus. They have run face to face with Jesus. I think Luke is trying to tell us here that Jesus has power over everything. He is sovereign over everything. There is no captivity that holds you captive that Jesus cannot overcome. There is no sin that holds you captive that Jesus cannot overcome. There is no desire that is so strong that Jesus cannot overcome. And that was the first question I asked you, remember? I said, is Jesus powerful enough to overcome the spiritual forces? And the answer was, absolutely. Even though some people might get hung up on the fact that he sent the, the demons into the pigs, what we can see is the fact that Jesus sailed across an entire lake which is way bigger than we probably even imagine, for one man. One man's immortal soul to go and change that man's life so he could send him out to change others' lives. That's an important thing for us to see here. The pigs don't matter as much as we think they do. Third thing, the heart, set free from, uh, the heart that is set free from sin by Jesus, that changed heart. The changed part. You see this passage, his heart is set free. When the passage begins, we have a man who is running around naked in the tombs. No home, no clothes, no connection. Nobody wants to be near him. And by the end, he's sitting in his right mind at Jesus' feet, fully clothed and fully aware. That is change. That is change, and that is what Jesus is about. He's about changing us. He, this guy, he had a new name, and he had a new nature to go along with it. He no longer was legion. He had a new name and a new nature to go along with it. He was no longer naked. He was no longer screaming and babbling in whatever tongue there was. He was no longer living amongst the tombs. When those people came out to see him, he was clothed and in his right mind, sitting at the Savior's feet. And I already told you, when you're sitting at the Savior's feet, it's a sign of being a disciple, sitting at the rabbi's feet, being a disciple, taking it in, begging to stay with him. When he's getting ready to leave, he's like, I want to go with you. I want to continue to learn. I want to continue to do these things. And Jesus says, you know what? You don't get to come with me. You get to go and be my witness and make disciples, something he tells us to do in Matthew chapter 28. Come as you are, be changed, but then go change your world. 
Last thing is I want you to see, and it's the saddest one of all the four things I wanted to point out. And that's the hard hearts of those who reject Jesus. The hard hearts. The sad thing is, is at the end of this reaction, at the end, end of the interaction, we see the majority of the townspeople do what? Tell Jesus to leave. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want you to come in. I don't want you to change my life. I don't want you to be here because it's all about what I want. It's not about what you want because if I take you what you want, things might happen. It might affect my economy. It might affect my social standing. It might affect so many different things. So Jesus, you go. Leave me alone. That is what we see right here, that they're frightened by him. And in the ability that he can change. And the most frightening thing of it all is what does he do? He does leave. They ask him to leave, and he does leave. And here's the thing. They're afraid of losing little things that don't really matter. And they've missed what, what they could have gained. The same thing that this guy who all the demons in him gained. And that is salvation. That is Jesus. So here's a closing question for you. Who are you in this story? Who represents you? Are you the man that is liberated by Jesus, transformed by Jesus, trusting Jesus? Are you someone who begs to be at the feet of Jesus no matter what else is going on? Are you a disciple that is there? Will you obey his command to go and share your story and tell people who are in desperate need of transformation of what Jesus has done for you? Or are you the one who loves your stuff too much to say, you know what, Jesus, you can wait. Or you can just leave. Who are you? Who are you in this story? I'm going to hold on to these things that give me life, or I'm going to hold on to you that gives me real life. Because here's the thing. We need to find our identity in Christ. We need to find our identity in him, not in our stance on something that is divisive, like politics or a mask or how we prove how right we are or our social justice stance not in our possessions, not in our titles, in Jesus. That is where we find our identity. None of those other things give life. He is it. We talked about last week, John chapter 10, verse 10. I came to give life and give it abundantly. Do we have that life? Are we trying to find it somewhere else? I'm going to refer back to that video because I'm sure it's all fresh in all of your minds right now. But the thing that he can do is transform us from fear to faith. He can transform us from uncertainty to confidence. He can transform us from unrest to assurance. He can take us from exhaustion to hope and rest. He can take us from confusion to clarity, and he can take us from division to unity. He has the power to do that if we would just go to him, if we would just follow him. See, nothing else can do that. We saw it in the passage. Nothing else could do that, but Jesus did it for this man. Only Jesus can, and he can do it for you as well. So here's our last question. Do you trust him? Do you believe that that is the truth, and do you trust him with your life? Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for who you are, and thank you for the way you continue to work in our lives, the way you challenge us, the way you change us, the way you make us and mold us into who you want us to be. And then, God, you don't just do that. You send us out to tell people about the change that has happened in our lives, 
to tell people about all the things that, that we were, but when we met you, all the things that we've become through a changed heart and a changed life. God, we want you to have all the glory. We know we can't do it on our own. We give you the praise and the honor, even in this story, to watch you change a man's life who then went and was told and did what he was told to go change a world. Thank you for this. Thank you for your power. Thanks for giving us the hope to know that you have all authority over all things, including the spiritual forces that are trying to divide us. We pray it all in your name. Amen.